Stand for the reading of the scripture, please. Last Sunday morning, on the occasion of our 26th anniversary of being the pastor of the church, I preached from Genesis 28 about Jacob fleeing from Canaan, leaving his uh, father and mother's home, going to Haran to live with his uncle Laban, the encounter he had with God at Bethel in Genesis 28. And then Wednesday night, from Genesis chapter 32, I preached about another encounter that he had when he left Haran, fled from Laban, came back to Canaan, and arriving in the mountains of Gilead, he had an encounter with God as he was fearfully awaiting the outcome of his first face-to-face meeting with Esau who wanted to kill him. And God met him. The Bible says in Genesis 28, uh, in Genesis uh, 32 and verse 24, Jacob was left alone. That's what I preached about Wednesday night. Today I want to continue the message about Jacob after that he has returned and he needs to be reminded of this experience at Bethel and God grabs him by the collar and says, young man, go back to Bethel. Go up to Bethel. So from chapter 35, verse 1 through 7, let us look at this passage. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household, And to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings, that were, which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel, he and all the people that were with him. And he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. You may be seated. When I was about the age of 10, my brothers and the boys in the neighborhood were playing in the hayloft of the barn. We did not live on a farm, but we had a barn and there was a hayloft. I have a younger brother who's four years younger than me. At the time, he was about six. Why he would be climbing in the loft of a barn, I do not know why. I cannot imagine Justin being up there. He's six. But anyway, he fell. He fell to the wooden floor, and he was unconscious. We carried him into the house, and there were no telephones where we lived. And I don't even know how we got word to my dad who was working two or three miles away. But eventually, they came in a taxi cab and took my little brother away to the nearest hospital. We lived in Evergreen, Alabama, 
There was no hospital there. They carried him to, I believe, um, well, I can't remember the name of the place, but it was about 10, 15 miles away. Red, no, no. Anyway, another taxi came and took us to my grandmother's, and we awaited word about the condition of our younger brother. I remember the Pentecostal church had started in my grandmother's living room. And as we paced back and forth on the porch and in the yard, we'd already learned how to pray. And we were praying. We waited many hours before we got word. But I remember making God some promises. If God would spare Charles and let him live, that I would live for him. I had never been saved at that time. I'd watched other people pray, but I'd never tried it before. So that was my first experience that I remember really praying out of my own heart without repeating a prayer somebody else taught me. And I promised God some things that day. And when my brother came home, the weeks that followed, we had to teach him to walk again. And he, you know, overcame the difficulties and lived, is today living a normal life. But I remember that along with another experience later when I almost drowned, even after I was in the ministry. I remember another occasion almost drowning when we were in Panama City. I was a senior in high school, and some of us boys decided we'd go to the, to the Gulf. We went to the beach and rented a little raft on Sunday afternoon, my last excursion of this nature on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. I won't tell the whole story, but I almost drowned that day. Had not been for a man and his friend who were out there drinking that decided it would be a nice thing to do to save us, and he did save us. And had to pump the water out of my cousin who almost really drowned. I made another vow to God that day. And things down through years have made me remember those promises I made God. Jacob, as we heard last Sunday in chapter 28, fled from Palestine, from Canaan, went to Haran, to his uncle Laban's home. On the way there, he was, as he was spending his first night away from home, his, his brother Esau wanting to kill him, he pillowed his head on a rock, but God gave him a dream. He saw that ladder, angels ascending and descending, and there he made a vow to God. He met God at Bethel. God appeared to him. Angels came, and he vowed a vow. In chapter 29, he arrived in Haran and worked for his uncle Laban. He said, I'd like to take your daughter Rachel as my wife. She was the younger daughter and very beautiful. He said, okay, you worked for me seven years. You can have Rachel for a wife. So the Bible says he worked the seven years. Seen, he loved her so much it seemed like a few days. But at the time of his honeymoon when she removed her veil, he found out it was not Rachel, it was Leah, the older sister a more homely, not nearly as beautiful person. And he said, what have you done? You've deceived me. The deceiver is being deceived. He deceived his blind and aged father. He stole his brother's birthright. Now then, he's on the receiving end of the difficulties. And Laban said, well, there's no problem. said, in our country, there's a custom. You never have the younger daughter marry until the older daughter, her older sister, is married. You work for me another seven years for Leah, and you can have them both. 
Didn't seem like a bad deal, so we agreed to that. Now, I believe he fulfilled Leah's days, then received Rachel as his wife. You, studying the book of Genesis, you conclude that they both became his wife early. And he had children by them. He only stayed up there 20 years before he went back home. And so he had to have them both before he worked that 14 years to have all those children. And so he worked the 14 years. During the time that he worked for Laban, Laban changed his wages 10 times. This shrewd businessman now then is getting it in the neck. Laban's flock, though, multiplied, but Jacob's more so than Laban's. In chapter 31, he left Haran to go back to Canaan, back to Palestine to face the music. Laban pursued him, but God intervened and said, don't lay a finger on him. He's mine. Don't dare touch him. He'd been there 20 years and they made peace. In chapter 32, he arrived in the mountains of Gilead. He knew that he had to face Esau. Chapter 32 and verse 24 says, Jacob was left alone. As I preach Wednesday night, there comes a time that you have to face the situation where mama and daddy, brother Wiggins, Sunday school teacher, a deacon, none of these ministers on staff can do exactly what has to be done. You have got to meet God. However, Jacob was still leaning on his carnal ways. He said, I feel like I know what to do. I'll send a peace offering. So he sent 200 she-goats, 20 he-goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels and colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 she-asses, and 10 foals. An offering, a peace offering of multiplied thousands of dollars in value trying to impress Esau. Well, Esau said, my brother, I have enough. The attitude the Arabs have towards the Jews today. We've got our oil. We have our wealth, our subterranean streams of oil. What do you have but our land that we want back? And so, Jacob being of the culture he was, trying to buy peace with money, found it a futile thing. God intervened, and in chapter 33, Jacob and Esau were reconciled, not because of the peace offering, but because God arranged it. In chapter 34, Jacob had a daughter, a beautiful girl named Dinah. She was violated and disgraced by a Canaanite named Shechem. And her brothers found out about it, and so they conceived a plan to take vengeance on Shechem and all of the people of this city. They talked them into becoming circumcised in order to intermarry with them. And then on the third day, they went in and slew every male among them. When Jacob found out about this, he was afraid. He said, now you've made me stink in the eyes of all the Canaanite nations. I'll be annihilated. Now I not, not only have Esau to contend with, but I've got all of these Canaanite nations you have angry with me. In chapter 35, taking up on the heels of that, God said to Jacob, it's time that you and I have a little talk in the cloakroom. 
You remember when you were at Bethel and I appeared to you and you made a vow and I told you I'd take care of you? You went up to Haran, you tampered with nature in order to multiply your own flocks. You allowed your wives to do things. They stole your father-in-law's gods. You've, you've tolerated the strange gods among your people, although there was no indication that Jacob ever worshipped one of these strange gods. He tolerated it, though. And God says, you must now go back to Bethel. You see, Jacob tried to patch things up with Esau. He tried to arrange his own affairs in Haran. He's trying to establish himself back in Canaan now, all without God's leadership, all without God's uh, power taking care of him. He's trying to do it on his own. God says it's time for you to go back to the first grade. Go back to Bethel, where he had met God when he had nothing. He had nothing but Esau's wrath, breathing down his collar with a dagger held ready to take his life. Nothing but a hard rock to pillow his head on. And he had no troops to defend him. But there he had to just let God say, trust me and I'll take care of you. God set a ladder up on the earth, the top of it reaching into heaven. And angels went up and down that ladder. And God stood above that ladder. And he says, you follow me and I'll be with you. And there that day, he made a vow to God. But he had met God at Bethel. He called it Bethel, which meant the house of God, the gate to heaven. There of a supernatural visitation, angels, God visible as he had this encounter with the Lord. And here's the vow he made in chapter 28. If God will be with me and keep me and give me bread, and raiment on my back, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. The Lord shall be my God. This stone shall be God's house, and I will give the tenth to thee. I have no doubt but what an evangel church family, there are people who have made similar vows to God. In this room today, we can recall instances when we were facing a crisis, and the Lord appeared to us in our distress, as he did to Jacob in his distress, and we made a vow, but we have long since forgotten our vow. We got the job that we were pleading for. We got the house that we wanted so desperately. God was merciful to heal our little sick baby when the fever was so high, and we didn't even know if there would be brain damage. We didn't know if there was some kind of disease that was going to seriously afflict our child for the rest of its life. Parents, those moments when we were so afraid that our young people were going the wrong direction and we vowed to God if he would help steer them through those treacherous currents of life, that we'd dedicate our family to God, we'd work for the Lord. Many of us have promised God we'd do anything if you'd only get us out of the mess that we were in, out of the jam, out of the crisis, if you'd come to our rescue, we have promised God. And it's time we go back to Bethel where we made that vow. Because since we made that vow, 
we've been trying to settle up with Esau on our own. We've been arbitrating with the world on the world's terms. We've been working on our retirement. We've been managing our affairs. We've been articulating things in our life because we have learned how to manipulate and we've learned how to squeeze through the tight places and we always somehow make it until there comes a crisis doctors cannot resolve. Financial institutions refuse to step in and intervene. Our back is to the wall. Disaster is impending. The crisis deepens. The dark clouds are billowing over our head. And we do not know where to go or where to turn to. And God says, I'll tell you where you need to go. Back to Bethel. I met you there when you didn't have anybody to lean on. When you had nothing to rely upon. And I proved myself to you. Now go back there where God appeared to you where the angels were manifest, where the ladder was set up, where God stood above everything that was in your life and where you made a vow and a promise to God. You may have forgotten your vows, but God has not forgotten. In verse 1 of my text, God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. When you were in a jam, when you were in a mess, just like modern day Christians today, we promised God many things that we have not kept. We made vows on the day of our wedding that there's little attempt today to see them through till death do us part. You think, well, oh my, we're living in the 20th century. I know that. And Jacob had that 20th century concept and philosophy until it didn't work one day and all of these modern philosophies that let you squeeze through the cracks and make excuses and find reasons why you can violate God's commandments one of these days there will be nowhere to turn there will be no answer and no resolution to your problem until you get back on your knees at the old-fashioned altar where you met God and God rained down on you the glory and the power and the Shekinah brought an answer and brought faith to your life. And mind you, it will come. It can come when the economy crashes. October hasn't always been a good month and there's still a few days left. God's people better not leave everything in the hands of the Democrats and the Republicans. And Mr. Bush one day will realize that there has to be more than politics involved in solving this nation's problems. More than votes. There's going to come a time that people are going to have to call on God. What if tomorrow we looked at the headlines and it was more than the Cincinnati Reds? What if you found another headline that says, no withdrawals today from your bank? The budget deficit, the energy crisis, the Middle East situation, our economy is in such a state 
that our government has proclaimed a moratorium on all withdrawals. No checks will be honored. No savings accounts can be touched. No retirement accounts will be used until further notice. And then our government tries to solve the problems by issuing a new form of currency and distributing the wealth so that there will be an equalization and lowering the deficit, just wiping out the deficit and saying we're going to start over again. There would be more suicides this week. There would be some people, though, instead of taking the back door out of life, would remember, I remember the time, I remember the place that I made a vow to God and God promised me that he would take care of me. I've forgotten my vow and in this economic crisis, I'm going back to Bethel. I'm going to find a solution to my problems. I don't know what's going to happen to this old sin-sick benighted world that's headed pell-mell down this road of disaster, but I'm going to get a hold of the prayer bells of heaven and I'm going to ring until there's an answer, until there's a peace in my heart that the future will be taken care of. It may not be an economic crash. It may not be a depression. But friends, it can come in the form of some kind of physical crisis. It can come in other types of crisis, dealing with our family, dealing with our children, dealing with other business matters. But there will come a time that we need to visit Bethel again. Verse 9 tells us, God appeared unto Jacob again, and he blessed him. And I believe he'll do that for us today. God will appear to us again. Out of all the experiences Jacob had had over these many years, he had prospered, he had blessed, he had more flocks, he had wealth, untold, he had children and wives. You know, what more could he ask for? Except right now, he knew that that didn't mean anything. He knew that without God's help, it could all be taken from him. And you may feel that you've got it made, that you've finally arrived in life where you don't really need to visit the prayer altar again. You don't need to seek God. You don't need to have faith in God. But it can be wiped, up, wiped away in just a second. But God visited him again and he blessed him and he changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Jacob means supplanter, deceiver. It means the successful businessman that he was who knew how to sharpen his pencil, who knew how to make the right investments. And Israel meant a prince with God, one that has power with God and prevails. And friends, it means more to be able to be in touch with the maker of this world than it does to be in possession of this world's goods. God revealed himself to Jacob in verse 11, and he said, I am God Almighty. In the Hebrew, that's El Shaddai, meaning the all-bountiful, all-sufficient one, the self-existent God who is all-powerful, who can do everything. I submit to you this morning, there is nothing in our life but what God can take care of it. God is bigger than all your problems. The Sherets sang that when they visited our church. It's about time we have them back. <laughs> if they're not old men by now and lost their voice, but... I like that song, God is Bigger Than Our Problems. And Brother Lackey preached that sermon here. Find a promise that is greater than your problem. And friends, you can do that at Bethel. You won't do it pursuing this way of wilderness. You'll notice in verse 2 
of my text today, God instructed Jacob to go back to Bethel and he said, put away the strange gods that are among you. They were not Jacob's gods, but he had tolerated these gods. He was the head of his tribe. He was responsible for what went on. Mom and dad, you're responsible for the records, for the albums, for the tapes, for the television programs, the entertainment, the parties, the socials. You're responsible for that that you give your permission for. And God said, Jacob, I know you've never worshipped an idol God, but put away those strange gods. And down in verse uh, 4, they gave Jacob all the strange gods and he took them and hid them under an oak tree. I don't know why he did that. Maybe being the businessman he was, he thought, well, if this prayer doesn't work, we'll come back and try these gods again. No indication he ever felt that way, but some, instead of destroying them, he hid them under an oak tree. Parents, we're responsible. The occult is forcing its way into our home by way of television, by way of games and toys and entertainment. We posted on our bulletin boards an article about the teenage mutant uh, ninja tur turtles. I can't even get all that out. And its connection with the occult. And some parents had their children destroy them. My gr grandchildren took their things that had the Ninja Turtles on them and built a bonfire and burned them. And I admired that. And yesterday was Sean's birthday and he got, got a birthday gift that had a Ninja Turtle on it. His face got that long. Because <laughs> he knew where that one was headed. <laughs> put away the strange gods I don't know what kind of society you belong to that has occult symbols I don't know what kind of graven images might exist in your home and what kind of television programs that might communicate messages of evil spirits what kind of music invites the operation of evil spirits in your house. But I believe at Bethel, you're going to have to put away the strange gods. There will come a time that you'll understand I'm going to die. And I'm going to face God. And all of these things that I've been a part of that were questionable. And these things that I have allowed that had strange messages communicating evil influence into my life and upon my family. I wish I had done away with them a long time ago, but I want to do it before I leave this world. Do it now, friends, when God is calling us to Bethel. He built there an altar, verse 7 tells us, and he called it El Bethel, meaning not just the house of God, but El Bethel meant the God of the house of God. It was a place where he and God had a personal relationship. It was more than a memorial, this altar. It was to be used in prayer and worship. He poured a drink offering and poured oil upon it for incense. We need to build an altar today where we can make a covenant with God and continue our relationship. Verse 13 says, God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. And you know the rest of that story. You know the birth of the nation of Israel through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These patriarchs, 
You know that God has blessed their seed and multiplied their seed as the sand of the sea and as the stars of the heavens. And God has kept his bargain. And God will make a covenant with us today if we will forsake the things that have robbed us of our power and robbed us of our joy. If we'll go back to the altar, if we'll go back to the place of commitment and consecration and say, God, forgive me for reneging on my promises and on my vows. It's better not to make a vow than it is to make one and then go back on it. I'm not talking about the vows the television preacher's begging you to make of $1,000 to his ministry. I'm not talking about that kind of vow. I, I, I advise the person to go back on that one because it wasn't made to God, it was made to a preacher. I said, you just forget it. A man came in my office one day. He'd been out at the Gator Bowl to a tent meeting. He said, the preacher told me if I didn't write this check, that God was going to put cancer on me and on my wife. I said, you go to the bank and stop payment on the check right now. God is not going to put cancer on you because of that preacher's trying to put a curse on you. That's the occult. God don't operate like the occult. And God doesn't operate on the basis of these vows that preachers are trying to get you to make to their so-called ministry. But if you make a vow to God based on your need and His coming through in that time of need, don't you forget it. You, even if it's an irrational vow, you can go and pray about it and say, God, I didn't understand what I said and you show me what to do here. I want your guidance. If you make a vow that you're, it's impossible, it's like the vow that, who was it made a vow to offer to the Lord and his daughter came out, what's his name? Who? No, that don't sound right. Maybe it was. What he needed to do is go and apologize to God for making an irrational vow. God don't want you to do anything irrational. God will not lead you to do something foolish. He will not tell you to do something that is unscriptural. And it was, would have been unscriptural for him to offer his daughter as a sacrifice to God. And so there's a time you need to seek counseling and need to seek godly influence over things. But this morning, I'm offering to you a message back to Bethel where we made God some promises. Will you bow your heads?